from HerbMentor.com. This is HerbMentor Radio. You're listening to HerbMentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is Paul Bergner. Paul is a medical herbalist and founder and director of the North American Institute of Medical Herbalism in Boulder. He's been practicing and teaching natural medicine since 1973. He's edited the uh, Medical Herbalism Journal since its founding in 1989 and has written books on medical herbalism, nutrition, Chinese medicine, ethnobotany, and naturopathic medicine. The North American Institute of Medical Herbalism is in the vitalist tradition, and you can find out about its programs and, and distance learning opportunities at naimh.com. That's N as in Nancy, A-I-M as in Michael, H.com. Paul, welcome. Hi. Well, you know, this is kind of cool because, like, we were hanging out in my kitchen just a few days ago, but now we're back in our homes. And But it was a lot of fun hanging out there and getting to know you. Um, and uh, But we first got in contact, uh, Paul and I first got in contact uh, years ago when he uh, signed up for the Kamana Naturalist Training Program at Wilderness Awareness School. And, I, and, and Paul, I was into uh, studying herbs a little then. Um, but you know, you know, I was doing my apprenticeship at the time, but you know, I guess the internet or whatever and searching and websites and all that isn't, you know, that was a long time ago, you know, that might've been what, seven, eight, nine years ago or something. Uh -huh. And, uh, so, but, uh, I, I didn't really understand like what you'd done or, or exactly how much you've done in the herbal field until I was like looking in bookstores and started seeing your books on the shelves. And I went, Oh, Paul Bergner, right. <laughs> And later, you know, discovered and show, showed up at a couple herbal conferences and you were teaching that I went to. And, and it was uh -huh. great, you know, to finally connect um, after our relationship uh, uh, with the, in the Kamana program at Wilderness Awareness. Yeah, I'm always ready to start over and learn something new. So. <laughs> exactly. Which that's, is, uh, which is um, you know, that that's actually interesting because uh, that's a great place to start just about learning, um, learning something new. Because... Um, you know, what what I'm was really really um, uh, it was awesome to, to to hear is when you were talking to me about how you have um, put in or integrated or infused um, uh, nature awareness and and connection to nature into your herb program because you know as we both know that um, you know many programs will just kind of get so hyper focused into the uh, what's this for that, or what do you take for that, or this, or dried herbs and this that they kind of right. right lose contact with where where the where the plants came from and their connection, people's connection. So I was just curious if you could maybe we could just start talking about that about um you know like how nature connects. Yeah, yeah, I could explain it. Just yeah. kind of my my background. Um, mm -hmm, be great. Uh, philosophy. Um, I was uh, uh, trained in the 1970s. Uh, you know, in some elements of a system called nature cure. Mm -hmm. um, and a nature cure, um, you know, the formal kind of nature cure movement uh, came out of uh, Germany. It started there around, oh, 1810, 1820. Uh, and it spread to uh, North America. And uh, its descendants are the current uh, naturopathic medical profession here. And uh, the... Uh, nature cure uh, is all about uh, the healing power of nature. Mm 
that's a phrase that was taken from Hippocrates uh, in Hippocrates in the writings of Hippocrates. And by the way, Hippocrates wasn't just one guy. Hippocrates was three generations of a school. And they all wrote under the name Hippocrates. And uh, this is why his writings were so powerful, because um, in that school, their culture was to do direct observation. Mm. Rather than practicing by the book, they wanted to see what was actually happening, and they recorded that. And uh, three generations of that, using the same sort of uh, uh, principles. And um, anyway, they uh, referred to the healing power of nature, and they capitalized the N. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and um, uh, you know, like nature, and um, so th- that you know that approach and all its related uh, descendants and cousins and uh, you know similar creations in other place. This idea of the healing power of of nature, of uh, the powerful very force of life itself, mm-hmm. uh, is the healer. The herb isn't the healer. The drug isn't the healer. Nature is the healer. And uh, this is the uh, underlying idea of, say, Ayurvedic medicine or Chinese medicine. Um, Chinese medicine, they may call that qi, you know, or jing. In Ayurvedic medicine, they may call it prana or ojas. Uh, But they're talking about the same thing Hippocrates uh, was that he called uh, nature. And uh, so that force... The problem is, here is, if you want to talk about plant constituents, it's easy to talk for a long time. Mm-hmm. I can find a whole lot of words to say about alkaloids, mm-hmm. right? But try to find a whole lot of words to say about life. Right. <laughs> right. It's sort of like, I think it's like, um, you know, when your girlfriend says, um, you say you love me, what do you mean by that? And, and very quickly, you turn into a blubbering idiot. Well, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, your uh, eyes. Wait, no, no, I, 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 I love you. You know, uh, uh, love. How do you talk about that? How do you talk yeah. about life? Yeah, right? true. So, uh, it's much harder to be articulate about life. And um, then, as soon as you give it a name, uh, that becomes problematic. You know, so the the physician level herbalists of the 1800s in North America they referred to life as the vital force, mm-hmm. right? and they would use the same language Hippocrates did, but they had said the vital force is the power behind all healing, and Hippocrates would say nature is the power behind all healing. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah. So, uh, uh, what what is this? So, the basic principles of vitalism are. Uh, life itself, the power of life, the ecological power that that welds all the levels, all the complex levels of a human being into one thing, mm-hmm. one life. You know that that's the power that wants to heal and restore, and it's constantly working at healing and restoring. That would be principle number one. Principle number two would be it needs all the nutritional building blocks uh, in order to do its work. So uh, it's like you get a uh, get a a kit piece of furniture or a toy you're going to construct for your child at Christmas, you know, and the kit right. comes and it's missing some bolts and screws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you can't do it. Right. I mean, you can put it together and it doesn't work. So you have the human being. If the human is missing protein and magnesium, then the person's going to be sick. 
And the vital force can try all it wants to heal that person, but but the, doesn't have the building blocks it needs. Doesn't doesn't have the tools it needs to produce life. So, the um, so nutrition becomes the primary therapy of the vitalist. And Hippocrates' version of that is, food is your best medicine. Right? And then uh, then the third principle would be, well, okay, but that food has to be well digested. <laughs> there, there's the rub, right? So uh, one of my old uh, naturopathic uh, mentors, uh, you know, cranky old guy, he'd say, you're not what you eat, you're what you assimilate. <laughs> so <laughs> we have this principle, you need to select food, uh, you know, energetically, according to whether it's warm or cold, uh, you know, uh, for, for different people, it has to be different, and it has to be foods that don't cause digestive uproar. Uh, so uh, a lot of it has to do with food selection, uh, food balancing, macronutrient balancing, screening for food intolerance, things like that. And then here's where in most of the major herb systems you end up with the center of gravity of herbalism is herbs aimed at the digestive tract. Okay. So uh, Greek, uh, Greek, Roman, Arabic uh, medicine, it continues on today in Asia, um, they talk about the four humors. And, and if you read their books, they say, well, here's humor number one, here's humor number two, number three, number four. And they each rise at a different point in the digestion and processing of food. So their chief target for altering you know, constitutional imbalances, energetic imbalances in the body, is to do uh, herbs that will tweak the way the humors are produced in the, in the gut and in the liver. I see. And... Um, Chinese medicine, I mean, they have more than that, but Chinese medicine has the whole field of um, treating what they call the spleen. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, the, the earth element is the digestive tract. It's like the garden. Exactly. And uh, there's a, a beautiful sketch um, of the, the actual Chinese character for the spleen, and it's like a granary mm -hmm. <laughs> at the middle, at the center of a village. Oh, wow. And everything in the village depends on getting the grain out of the granary and feeding them. Yeah, because, uh, right, because um, at least in the five-element system that I practice, this, you know, the, the, this, this stomach works on churning and grinding down, but it's the spleen responsible for moving it everywhere. Yeah, for transforming it. Mm -hmm, transforming. And, uh, mm -hmm. and storing it and bringing it back out of storage, just like a grain house. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of fall, you put your grain into the greenhouse, and then over the year, you have to bring it back out. Right. That's very similar to what happens with our nutrients, you know, going into their reservoirs, you know, and the, uh, after a meal and then coming back out as you need them, you know, over the course of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, um, that's, you know, that's uh, uh, vitalism. And the, another uh, really big, big piece of all those systems is that the practitioner really needs to study how the body works. Mm -hmm. You really need to see what's going on with the body. You're going to view the body as a garden, right? You really want to see how it works. And when you see the body having a fever or having inflammation or having a nasal discharge or having diarrhea or whatever, you, you're looking at those and you're seeing those as the vital force healing the body. Right. Right. Those aren't diseases, right? The fever is, is uh, cranking you into metabolic overdrive, 
and uh, to where you can produce a whole lot more antibodies and white blood cells to fight off an infection. And uh, inflammation is the increased local activity of the immune system in order to get rid of something. And the... uh, you know, and so on. Diarrhea is cleaning the bowel. You know, a cough, a nice mucusy, gurgly cough where you're coughing the stuff up is cleaning the airway. So um, we can go way back to Hippocrates and say at the time of Hippocrates and in almost any era, if you're interested in healing, you can look around and you can make mistakes yourself. And uh, you can see that some of the things you thought were going to be therapeutic made the person sicker. Like you selected an herb, an astringent herb, like say golden seal, that dried up somebody's mucus, right? Hmm. And then the people you did that with got were sicker longer, right? Hmm. And that that'll actually be the case. And then if you now we know more about science of why that is. A lot of the, you know, we know for instance a mother's uh, milk will confer immunity to the baby because of all the antibodies in it. And all those antibodies that are in mother's milk are in your mucus. Right? So if you are coming down with a viral infection and your nose is going drip, 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 you want your nose to go drip, drip, drip. <laughs> you want your mucous membranes coated in that nice, clear, thin mucus. And uh, it's full of antibodies that, that helps uh, you know, fight off the, uh, the infection. And rather than trying to dry it up, the vitalist would give you a bunch of water to keep it flowing in a nice, uh, thin, you know, nice thin form where it's not too uncomfortable. Uh, so in, in any era, you uh, and any honest practitioner can see that sometimes they made the patient worse, and that is uh, that's mortifying uh, when it happens. Um, the uh, uh, there was a beautiful story. Um, a man, uh, he was a very good writer. I admired his writing, and he uh, was writing in, um, I forgot the name of the magazine, but he had been diagnosed with cancer and was writing about his dying of cancer, uh, telling the story. And uh, he has this very poignant uh, moment in there where he says, um, so um, my general practitioner referred me to an oncologist, and, and when I walked in the oncologist's door, there before me was a young doctor. And then he says, um, if I'm dying, I don't want a young doctor. I want an old doctor with their face all covered with wrinkles. Every wrinkle, a terrible fatal mistake that they'll never, ever make again. (laughs) (laughs) And um, Hippocrates' version of that was, above all, do no harm. (laughs) And uh, why do you think the Hippocratic School came up with that? as one of the three basic principles of medicine. It's because they'd seen a lot of harm done in the name of medicine. Right. So um, when you accept that as a principle, you approach your patient much more gently. So, well, it sounds like <laughs> you're putting your much lowering more your ego and everything you think about who you are and your role in the healing process empowering your observation skills, connecting that to nature and observing nature in a person. Is that what you're... You just said it. Oh. <laughs> you just said it all. <laughs> you took okay. the next paragraph out of my mouth. Oh, go right ahead that, then. That's, <laughs> no, no, that's, that's exactly it. When you realize that you can make a muddle of things really quickly, you become humble. Mm-hmm. And when you become humble, you become much more observant. You start to see what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Right? And... Uh, then when you're observant, you start to see how, 
how life is manifesting in that person at that time. Uh, and so, yeah, you have what, uh, I guess you can, <laughs> are you going to cut out a little piece in the middle here, I hope, um, when I'm stammering. Um, I had a conversation with some elder herbalists from England uh, some time ago. And uh, we were talking, and we talked about as we got older, and we all agreed, there were about five of us, and we all agreed that as we got older, we stopped thinking of ourselves as herbalists. Mm. And we had a conversation about who we thought we were because it had more to do with using herbs as tools, and who we started to define ourselves was the approach of how we use those herbs, right? So, uh, someone can be an allopathic herbalist just like an allopathic doctor, and they can here take this herb for that and make that go away and and, and pay me, right? Uh, someone else could also a different person could actually view the client and say, okay, well the force of nature is working there, and ask the question, how can I cooperate with that? How can I observe that and cooperate with that in my treatment? Sometimes people have a very complicated disease, and the only way you need to cooperate is help them tweak their diet. And, uh, of course, there's plenty of place for herbs, um, especially herbs like that might remove uh, indigestion, uh, herbs that might uh, promote circulation, you know, support circulation, uh, herbs that might um, uh, help a person ward off fatigue to the point where they can um, uh, deal with some of their health problems better because they're not so tired all the time and uh, addressing them at their, at their, you know, address them at their root cause. So... We're having this conversation, and the words popped out of my mouth. I hadn't particularly thought them before. But I said, yeah, I don't think of myself as an herbalist anymore. I think of myself as a student and a servant of life. Oh, yes. And this is the approach of the vitalist with their client. Right? But not just with their client. Right? I'm studying how life moves through me. I'm studying how life moves around me. I'm studying how life moves through my, my client or my patient. And the point of view of the vitalist, this is all one life. Right. <laughs> right. It isn't like, uh, so what's around me uh, is uh, life in nature. And what's in front of me is the life in, in, a, in a patient or a client. What's inside me is the life in me. Uh, so I'm constantly observing all of that. And it isn't like, Oh, I just do that when I'm sitting in a clinic with a paid client sitting in front of me. I'm doing that all the time. Right, right. And uh, so uh, for my own sanity, <laughs> my own peace of mind, I started many years ago, 25 years ago, I started uh, spending time alone uh, in the nature. And um, maybe in kind of domesticated nature like the public parks in Portland, Oregon, but a lot of that time out in wild wilderness areas. And um, uh, when I would do that and shake off the stuff from the city, you know, and shake off the way I think when I'm in the city and my worries and my anxieties of the city and just be with what's there, I would start to experience, you know, being that this was all one life. I was part of that, right? I was part of what was going on in the tree. And I started to experience this personally you know i mean i experienced it wasn't a thought it wasn't a philosophy you know i started to experience it and i would have this i'd feel so vital when i came back i'd be so inspired and 
and rested and, you know, sleeping in the circadian rhythm and uh, have new insights on life and things and just feel the life in my veins and feel the life in my spirit and in, in my heart. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I love that. Now, we can go back and read uh, the Hippocratic writings. And it's really, I think it's really fascinating that Hippocrates wrote, he said the requirements for someone to be a physician and one of the requirements is leisure. Interesting. <laughs> and that's how they tra- translated the Greek word. But what it means is they need downtime. Right. right? And uh, I am quite convinced in the Hippocratic era on the island of Kos in the, in the <laughs> Mediterranean, mm-hmm. that leisure time for them was leisure in nature. Uh, you know, nature was very imminent and very present there. You have all the weather from the Mediterranean. You don't have cars. The fastest thing moving is a donkey cart. All the food you eat is stuff that's been grown, you know, and, and wild foods from the forest and the fields there. And I'm convinced what he meant by, uh, by leisure wasn't what we mean like going for a Florida vacation or something, you know, or relaxing with a nightcap on the deck of your condo. Right? <laughs> Thinking leisure is time to be in nature and to mull you know, mull what's going on. And you see where we're headed here? Mm, I do. (laughs) So I train my students in herbalism, but I train them in vitalism. And a central piece of vitalism is getting in touch with your own life and periodically immersing yourself in the ocean of life in a natural setting. Um, And uh, uh, what this eventually gets to you know, in the modern era, we'd have the idea that, like, nature, the thing Hippocrates capitalized, that nature is a small inn, right, and it lives out in wilderness areas the way uh, traditional people were put out on reservations, right? Mm-hmm. And what we eventually have to get to is to witness nature and our client in the city, in our clinic, right in front of our nose. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, the, uh, you know... I can say what I got from that Kamana program where you go, you go to a sit spot in nature and you go every day. You know, you go when you don't feel like going. You, know, you, <laughs> you go. It's raining. And that course of going when you don't feel like going, you say, I'm committing myself to this. I'm committing myself to nature and to the earth and to the nature inside me and to unfolding my own, you know, awareness in, in my own soul in a natural setting. Uh, then, of course, anytime somebody does something that momentous, you, you, there's going to be obstacles. And most of our obstacles are internal. Um, things like fear of the rain, fear of the cold, uh, not wanting to be uncomfortable, uh, afraid of animals, afraid of bugs, you know, or whatever. And, I, I just um, want to mention, too, just so people are real clear what we're, <laughs> heck we're talking about here, is that um, that an exercise in the Kamana Naturalist training program is um, – from Wilderness Awareness Schools, uh, but you don't need to do that program for this exercise. It's simply, uh, it's simply to um, call it a sit spot, uh, sometimes called secret spot, um, and that's just a place that's easy for you to get to that you can go every day on a regular basis. If it maybe it's your backyard or the park down the street or somewhere uh, by a tree, somewhere you feel comfortable, connect with outside, and visit that on a regular basis, and just take time to sit by that tree, sit by that stream sit by that bush, whatever, and uh, observe and feel what's around you. And and it's amazing and profound what happens when you start to really uh, um, connect with the natural world day after day with that simple exercise. And Paul, you told me that you were doing that. For, you've done that uh, for 10 years. Well, I started in, uh, in, I think I started going to that spot in uh, se- September 
of 2000. Mm-hmm. August or September, of the, yeah, it was September of the year 2000. Um, I made the commitment to go to that spot every day. Now, I went there more day, way more days than not for about six years, and now I go over there not every day, but I still go over there. And um, that was like uh, the first year I think I missed 11 days wow. of going, going to that place. You know, and the place, you know, you can go 100 yards in one direction and there's a mating coyote den, right? You go 100 yards in the other direction and there's a, a beaver pond. Right. And uh, in the in the next to the, my spot in the forest, there's a herd of mule deer, there's cottontails and squirrels. And um, down in the pond, there's muskrats. And down in the, you can go 100 yards in another direction and there's a wetland full of cattails and all the wetland plants. And the other side of that is a prairie dog village. And you get all the migratory birds come and land on that pond. And this is all within 200-yard stretch. And uh, what, what I've seen there, I've seen such beauty there as, as I never could have imagined would have happened. And I will say this is, this is inside the city limits <laughs> of Boulder, Colorado, sandwiched somewhere between a pharmaceutical company and the city recycling dump. Wow. And um, the place is not pretty. You know, when you first look at it, it's not pretty. It's kind of a beat-up area, you know. And uh, But really what I got there, it was interesting um, uh, from the Kamano program, what I learned is that if you know one spot, you know all spots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I uh, take students to Oregon every year to the rainforest there. And the work I did unfolding my perception uh, in this kind of uh, junky area in Boulder, Colorado, completely opened up my knowledge and understanding of what was going on in the rainforest, you know, in ways I, I wouldn't have anticipated. And um, so uh, really what we want to do, the training of a vitalist, we want to reframe our, our nature, our idea of nature as something that lives out in a wilderness area <laughs> to something that lives in us. And the full, total nature, all the seasons, all the phases of nature, all the beauty, the storms, right, the balmy days, that all lives in us. Mm-hmm. And uh, the transformative power of nature, which can take a seed and turn it into a, a tree, you know, uh, that's all in us. The power that makes spring come back every year, that's inside us. And uh, that's, a, see, what now I'm getting, uh, you have to use a lot of words, instead of the healing power of nature, Let's just say, wow, you know, the power that makes spring come back every year is inside me and it's inside you. You think that way with a client. You're thinking that way with a client. And, uh, and then also, you know this from experience. Right. You know, I've, I had a, a, a patient one time who had a, a, a terminal autoimmune disease and cancer at the same time. Uh, this was nine years ago. She's alive and a practicing herbalist without autoimmunity or cancer anymore. Wow! And uh, kind of to pu- to put that in—that's the healing power of nature. And it, it, the principles I mentioned at the beginning; those were each followed in her case. Right? And uh, I, I have two two uh, two pieces where I got it wasn't all you know in the Kamano program. I, I spent a lot of time in nature, you know, before. Uh, I started doing that Kamano program, but I had two really profound uh, formative experiences which uh, trained me as a healer. And uh, in one of those, um, in uh, uh, Oregon, there was a place I liked to go. I loved to do a solo there. And um, you could um, walk down this kind of exposed sunny hillside for a mile and a quarter, 
descended about 800 feet uh, down a trail, and you could go down into some some uh, low altitude old growth forest. Um, most of the old growth left in Oregon is either just little patches on the coast or uh, subalpine, you know, old growth up in the mountains. And uh, this is a, a rare little patch, you know, that's preserved. And I used to love to go down there. There's a little sandy beach and stuff. And um, but you'd walk down that hillside, and at one point you pass this place where there's a little trickle of water uh, run, running down a little cliff. And around that was a cedar grove. Uh, the rest of the the rest of the whole mile and a quarter was fairly well exposed. You know, there was just this cedar grove, and the cedar grove put shade on the cliff. And there's these beautiful waves of maidenhair fern <laughs> growing down going down the cliff. And you go in there, and the temperature would be ten degrees cooler. And it was like walking into air conditioning, and the feeling of these great big old trees leaving their happy, completely mature lives, you know, in this, this beautiful little waterfall. It looked like an altar. And you would just go in there, anyone, I don't care what your philosophy or your religion, you go in there and you get a feeling of the sacred, you know. So, so I, I, I'm... Um, Let, I, 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 I want to continue ahead, this. Okay. So um, I went there a lot, and I found personal solace there, and especially in that little grove, and that became my... my symbol, my little footprint for the sacredness of nature. And uh, I moved to Colorado and used to go back every year. And one year I went back and to make a long story short, the whole thing was clear cut. <laughs> as far as you could see up the hill and down the hill and every one of those trees and everything looked like somebody had taken a bulldozer to it. There was nothing left standing. And uh, this was like a one of the most devastating experiences in my life. And, uh, so I continued to go back. And do you know what happened in that clear cut? <laughs> Amazing biodiversity came back into that clear cut. The, it filled with berry bushes, and the bears would bring their babies up to eat the berries. Down below, it filled with shrubs, and the deer and the elk had better feed than they had before, and they started to thrive more. And... In the tenth year, the big leaf maples had grown up and were now shading the cliff again. And once again, it was all covered with maidenhair fern. And I brought students back there every year for about uh, almost ten years. And you can now walk through that clear cut, and there's more than 30 medicinal plants in there. And... To me, this was like, the only way I can say this was like the creator showing me the healing power of nature. And that what's been injured and healed may be more powerful, abundant, and beautiful than what was never injured in the first place. Than what was never injured in the first place. Wow. Uh, and I mentioned the person who had uh, lupus and cancer. That person is a practicing herbalist. Right. That person helps out. The person was made into a healer by her experience of illness and recovery. Right. And <clears throat> she is now a greater gift to uh, society, to the people around her, you know, and to the universe than she was before because of the gifts she acquired uh, during her healing. 
So I, I can go show that spot to people, and I can say, now, isn't this amazing? And everyone's, oh, wow, isn't that it's really astonishing? And I can say the only reason that is possible is because of the nutrients in the soil. Mm-hmm. If you look at the relationship there, you see what, what I described as vitalism. That's also the relationship of nature. Now, that they basically clear-cut an old-growth forest there. And there, there's 20 or 30 feet of really dense, nutrient-rich soil in the bottom of there, and all that could spring back. Right? And uh, this is this is the that, that's the principles of vitalism are right, are right there. Um, so anyway, um, what does the study of nature have to do with training of a healer? <laughs> okay, there's one. <laughs> I had another one. Uh, um, this has become a symbol for me, sacred symbol of life for me. There's a place south of Albuquerque. It's called uh, Bosque de la Pache. It's a wetland and uh, an overwintering place for these astonishingly huge um, birds, uh, snow geese and sandhill cranes. And uh, one year I went there and the, the count there was 70,000 snow geese and sandhill cranes were all there in this wetland. And uh, the government uh, uh, plants vast, huge tracts of grain over at one end so, that, so they'll have something to eat there. And um, they go over there during the day, and then, then, then they go back at night to st- stay in the water where they feel safe. And there's this phenomenon that happens at sundown called liftoff. And if you've never seen 70,000 birds, some of whom stand four feet tall, taking off over a 30-minute period <laughs> and making every manner of screech, crack, grackle, and caw that you can imagine, the sound of it and the sight of it is unimaginable. It's so powerful. And uh, that uh, as when I go back there almost every year, I go back in order to witness that, uh, you know, around the winter solstice. And uh, the, uh, it's a place of renewal for me. And uh, I found out that back some many, many years ago, those birds were nearly extinct in North America. Wow. And they started a conservation plan. And they went from like, one of those species had only like 300 members left in North America. They did a conservation plan. And now it's come back to what it, what it is now there. So uh, you can say, what do those two things have to do with vitalism? You know, you can say, one, you have to have the nutrients in the soil, and number two, <coughs> you have to stop killing the geese. <laughs> and if you just stop killing the geese, they'll come back. Right? And this is Hippocrates, above all, do no harm. And uh, the level of demolition that's happening to modern people with the, the drug therapies we use today is simply astonishing. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, some people, if somebody's, if somebody's taking those anti-ulcer medicines, they call them proton pump inhibitors. Um, uh, what are the names of some of those? The little purple pill. Uh, Prilosec. Or Prilosec or and yeah. those things. Uh, you know what those do? Those shut off your stomach acid. Now that what they do, they cut off your new your vital your vital transformational process at its root. Hmm. And a person who's taking those will never ever ever get better. Because essentially what they're doing, they're killing the geese. 
I've had so many patients that if I could get them off their drugs and their doctor would get them off their drugs, I mean, you, some people need their drugs to stay alive, right? Uh, that the vital force will restore them to a very, very high level of health. Um, and uh, so, um, see, these are some principles of medicine. Uh, now I have my healer. I want to bring my healer, train my students to the point where they can sit and feel, be, know the nature inside themselves and know it inside their client. Well, that isn't going to happen mm-hmm. without taking them out into nature. So, uh, we, um, as soon as people come to school, we spend a lot of time out looking at plants. Uh, while we're doing it, we're also looking at kind of that question. You look at a place, there's a bunch of plants there and there's some trees and that. And you kind of look with your heart and you say, okay, what's going on here? And you try to feel with your heart, you know, the ecological life in that place. And... Uh, see the plants in the community that they're in and uh, so we do that right away and then later on uh, we take people out and we take them camping uh, we do a, uh, in uh, the Colorado Front Range here we're really lucky you, you can go all the way from the glacier uh, you can drive all the way from the glacier and the alpine plants out to the shortgrass prairie out of sight of the mountains and all the plant zones in between all the elevations in between the creek sides and the hillsides and all that. You can drive all that in about four hours. Oh. And uh, so we, we take six days and uh, go from the higher elevation to the lower elevation. And, and we end up out at a sacred vision questing spot out on the short grass prairie. Mm-hmm. And, the, uh, and then uh, later we go to uh, uh, the rainforest around uh, Mount Hood. You can do the same thing at Mount Hood. You can go from snow line to sea level. I mean, there's tides in the Columbia River Gorge. Uh, you can go uh, there in uh, about a 90-minute drive. Uh, so um, what, what I found, you know, in the if you would say the average urban person who's never slept in a tent, say that person's at zero. This is to use some language we were using last week. And uh, the person out living in the wilderness doing, first, doing survival, mm-hmm. full survival would be at a 10. Mm-hmm. Um, I find you have to bring a person... And let's just say five is camping in a tent and being comfortable doing so. Maybe that's actually four or something, right? But um, I find I want to bring my healers at least up to four or five. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, some, of course, some people come to my school, they've done a lot of camping, you know, and they've you know, lived on the trail and stuff like that. But some people come, you know, straight out of the city and they've never slept in a tent. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so uh, uh, we do that, and uh, I, I find, you know, as far as uh, nature uh, wants to give you your vision, this is one of my theories, uh, nature really, really, really wants to get you to see who you really are in the greater order of things, mm-hmm. including your your calling to life, that this is one of the powers, forces of nature. You know? Hunter-gatherers, you know, who were living at seven on that scale, maybe they had to go out and do a formal vision quest inside a circle of stones, you know, uh, to get their vision, but I find modern urban people, you can take the person, um, uh, you know, just out somewhere where there's no services mm-hmm. <laughs> and no trails, right, and sit down, and that, that'll be enough of, of sort of breaking the mold and opening them up to nature where they can start to have their vision. Mm-hmm. And I really believe a healer needs to have that vision uh, to be a good healer. Um, that you know that vision that they that, that of themselves that they get from nature from being in nature. Wow. Uh, and I haven't even started talking about the plants. 
<laughs> the plants, I you know, I figure a person, uh, the the typical plant walk, uh, the herbalist will take the person around, and everyone's standing there with their notebook, and they stand around a plant, and it's kind of like as if it were dark, and you had a flashlight. Mm-hmm. And the only thing you're looking at is this little circle of light around the plant. Right. <laughs> right. And people are all looking at that. And if you actually watch a plant walk like that from afar, it looks like a funeral. You know, you know, everyone's sort of their head back looking down and going kind of, we have gathered here today. You know, it's kind of grim. It's very, very, very hard to connect to a plant and to know a plant, Right. Listening to a lecture about it, taking notes, and standing up. Right. So, um, uh, and I think it's part of the training of an herbalist. Is um, maybe not every plant you're ever going to meet, but there's in and the actual reality of herbalism and herbal history and in herbal practice, herbalists fall in love with plants the same way people fall in love with people. Mm. And people will have their three plants that they've really fallen in love with. Or maybe, you know, if they really outdoors a lot and really committed to it, a hundred plants that they've met, you know, and loved, right? But typically, people will have one or two or three or four plants that really have become their life companions. And um, uh, whether they use them medicinally or not, um, I had that experience with marshmallow, right? Uh, Way back in the 80s. Uh, we made a marshmallow medicine in a class I was in. And the teacher, uh, we dug up the whole marshmallow plant, and we cut off the top, and we cut off the root, but we saved the root crowns. And the teacher had me go replant the root crowns in the garden uh, af- after we'd made our medicines out of the root and the top. And I also saved the seeds. And um, uh, that night I had this very, very powerful dream about um, about Althea, right? And I became actually totally committed to that plant, and I just loved that plant and studied it, and I grew it in my garden um, <laughs> uh, for five years, and I never used it in that five years. I just loved that plant. That's cool. And uh, later, uh, I moved to Colorado, and later I'm actually treating a number of patients with autoimmune diseases, and they tend to get very hot and very dry, and uh, they are just burning up, and... Uh, also, um, I moved to Colorado. I moved from Oregon, where it's rainy all the time, to Colorado, where it's windy all the time, you know, where we live. And uh, people had one kind of condition in Oregon, very different kind of conditions here. Uh, people here, it's like they're sleeping inside a crop dryer every night, and then they get up and everything's dry. And um, so for those uh, autoimmune patients and for the general constitutional dryness here, I kind of, with my patients in my community, kind of discovered this method of uh, making an Althea tea and then diluting it out in your Nalgene uh, bottle, you know, about three or four to one, and having that be your beverage, what you drink instead of water. Mm. And uh, you'll see the whole dry constitution start to moisten up when somebody does that habitually. Now, I'd like to say this is not, you won't find this, that treatment, I haven't been able to find that anywhere in Western herbalism. In the past, people use Althea acutely, right? Uh, you know, as a demulcent for you know for the the stomach or maybe the lungs or something. They use it acutely, but I've not ever heard of it used as a constitutional medicine that way. You know, and it's my opinion that Althea and I were fated to meet, right. <laughs> and that together we we came up with that, and that uh, 
Althea helped me actualize myself as a healer, and I helped Althea actualize Althea, mm-hmm. increasing its potentiality to go and do, do many more, more things than what it had done before. And um, I, I've, I've taught that method to almost 200 clinical herbalists here. This is being used all over the country now. Wow. Um, and that, the, that really sprung up from your from the vital, I, from that vitalist had, relationship with the plant. I had this connection with that plant. Right. I uh, so uh, I know herbalists. Um, there's a, a wonderful herbalist. Um, uh, Deborah Francis is her name. Dancing Crow. Uh, in uh, she's in the Portland yeah, I met area. Her, yeah, yeah. Uh, she had a remarkable connection with uh, with redroot and also with hawthorn. And uh, she, I have her come talk to my students when I go up to Mount Hood and. She just gave this long talk about everything she learned about Hawthorne and Redroot by just completely immersing herself in them. And she discovered new uses for both of those. And um, this is, see, we want uh, a healer, we want to be not just memorize some rote old thing from old books. We want a dynamic connection with our tradition, but we're bringing our, condition, our tradition into the present and into the future. You know, we're bringing basically our all our traditions are basically from the agrarian era, and we're bringing them into the urban area, the urban area. And uh, you know, and nature is very much changed now from when we almost all lived on farms. And uh, so, uh, anyway, I want my my uh, uh, I want my uh, students to find their connections like that, right? So uh, while they're at school, we spend a lot of time outdoors, but I try to set in them the pattern where for the rest of their lives they'll spend time in, in nature that way and teach them a way to know a plant. Uh, like the first week of school, we do our first plant walk, and the students are all on their belly next to a plant of their choice with their navel on the earth. <laughs> no funeral here. Right? <laughs> and, uh, we're... Uh, and uh, they're studying that plant, and this this I also learned in the Kamana program, until they can memorize the plant and draw it from memory, mm-hmm. and making that connection with that plant. And uh, I'd rather have somebody do that with six plants and remember them all for life, than meet 40 plants on a, or 30 plants on a plant walk and not remember any of them, or remember three of them or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a very, very, very amazing experience one time <laughs> doing our plant, our plant drawing. And um, I had always taught, um, I learned in Kamana, you know, uh, ways to relate to animals. And some of it I learned out of the books and some of it I learned by, from the animals. But um, like um, generally it's not polite in nature to stare at an animal. So I, I have my students all trained to look at it if they see an animal while we're out there to look at it with their peripheral vision, you know, and not to stare at it. So um, we were out, um, I guess there were six of us, seven of us out, uh, lying on our bellies, and we were uh, drawing mallow. You know, mallow has these uh, kind of roundish leaves, and you look up the leaf, and it has these pretty little flowers hide under the leaves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we were all navel on the earth down there, next to some bushes, this big thicket of bushes in them, uh, just really bedded down, right? And drawing those plants, we've been there about 10 minutes. And out of the corner of my eye, I see this little yearling deer sticks its head out of the bushes and looks at us. And then walks over to the one of the herbalists and sniffs her hair. <laughs> and as soon as I saw her, I said, I said remember, peripheral vision, don't stare. It's, it's not polite to stare. So everyone just didn't stare and stayed there. And to the deer, we looked like a bunch of bedded down deer. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying the deer uh, thought we were deer, but the deer sure knew we weren't cougars, right? And the, the deer was very curious, right? And two of those women were nursing moms, and that deer walked over and sniffed the breasts of the two nursing moms. <laughs> And then quietly walked away. <laughs> now, They're you like, can't, nope, not my kind of milk. <laughs> you can't buy an experience like that. <laughs> and think of that, the connectedness to nature those students feel. You know, my experience in nature, you'll have an event like that and you'll never forget it. it it's created some new connection inside of you. Um, and... Uh, you know, a close animal encounter is something you never forget that. And uh, so I, I consider that part of the training of the herbalist. Right? <laughs> and um, uh, anyway, uh, part of the uh, – one of the things I try to train um, uh, people in because as herbalists, we also want to have the ability to make our own medicines. And uh, there's certain ways to relate and not to relate to how to harvest plants. And um, – uh, part of this, I just have to say it's my, my personal experience, but I'll tell the story of a, an herbalist I know who I was talking to her a couple of months ago, and she, uh, uh, we were talking about harvesting plants, and she got a look of grief on her face. And she says, you know, when I was in school 10 years ago, and she's, uh, you can see she, she's uh, heavy with grief. And she says, our teacher took us out and found a stand of osha, right? And osha is like a very powerful plant. And uh, everyone who's been around it says this is a sacred plant. The traditional people, it was always one of their sacred protector plants and and treated with great respect. And she said the the herbalist took us out, our teacher took us out, and there were 20 of us. And we stood around a kind of a big stand of osha. And um, she, the teacher talked about it for a while and then looked at her watch and said, okay, you've got 30 minutes, dig in. And the people proceeded to absolutely, totally ream and usurp that stand of Osha, ripping up the roots. And 10 years later, she's remembering this as one of the big regrets of her life of having been there when that happened. <laughs> and uh, this, is, this is my heart sensitivity when I'm around plants. Um, I have I have trouble picking a flower off a plant, right? If I don't have a good reason to, to pick it, that's just my heart sensitivity from the time I've been in nature. Those uh, trees and those plants feel like my flesh and blood. Right? Mm. And uh, so there's a way, uh, a way of tapping into observation, nature observation and wisdom in order to find a way to harvest plants that, that does no harm. And... Uh, so this is this is one of my big, uh, one of my educational goals for my students is to have them be aware uh, of that. You know, you can uh, there are certain ways you can go to a stand of osha the way they had, and uh, I happen to know those. I kn- I know that school, and I know those people were taking way more medicine than they actually needed for anything. Right. I had I had 20 students around a stand of OSHA in September, and I asked the students, who here needs some OSHA? Think about it carefully. Right? Right. And no one could come up and say they needed it. You know? So, 
And uh, it's very common at herb schools that, that teach wildcrafting that, you know, at the end of the year, the person has 20 gallons of tinctures on their shelf. And they won't use those 20 gallons of tincture in their lifetime. So, um, Sounds you know, like what we, I was telling you about Devil's Club last week. It's like, I yeah. haven't really felt that need for it yet. There you go. You know, and then I, that's why I had never harvested any from from that spot we were standing at. Yeah, well, I I think, you know, we have our connection with nature, and there are times when you can feel that connection with your patient, and all kinds of magic can happen, <laughs> right? right? And it's because you're both part of this greater life field, and wisdom can come into you, and the person can say things they hadn't thought they were going to say, and so on. And it's like life is trying to heal life, and it's happening all the time. And I think if people uh, approach their plants in the wrong way, you can injure that connection. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. That's really important point right there, folks. <laughs> and uh, I can't prove it, but I think someone who has their four ounces of an OSHA tincture that they will actually legitimately need that year instead of making a quart of it, right? And uh, if they've been through that process and they've stood by that OSHA and they could explain to the creator and to the OSHA why they needed it and exactly how much they needed and taking it in such a way that that, same, that plant will be alive next year, right? In that case, it's very easy to come in from the side and take some of the OSHA root from beneath the ground, leave the root crown in place, and that whole plant will be there next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. It Maybe it'll even grow in response to where you break it, you know? You know, you break the root. I'm not. I'm not sure of that. But um, I think the person who's done that, I think that medicine is going to work better mm-hmm. when they give it to their patient than than someone who either ripped it up or someone who just bought it on the on the herb market. Wow. Uh, because you're you're having your own your own spiritual intensity is connected to that plant then. Your, your own integrity, your own ethics, your own connection, not just to the ocean, but to that Aspen stand that it was in, into that subalpine Rocky Mountain whole neighborhood it was in. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, where you went there and you, and you felt so refreshed and you felt so sacred. All of that's now associated with the medicine when you make it. Now, like I said, I can't prove that in a double-blind clinical trial, but uh, I believe that's true. Um, so, yeah, yeah. this is... Yeah. Well, you know, really strikes me here, Paul, is that it's it seems like in order to work in in health and and to be to work in healing, and because we were talking earlier about a lot of modern natural practitioners not really trusting nature and being caught up more in other things, you know, not that not the uh, vitalist types of things we've been talking about, but uh, but it seems the only way to develop that trust and to trust nature is to do exactly what you're saying is to like as you bring your students out to have those experiences in nature because how could you yeah. ever trust it unless you see it and have a personal experience? And that's probably yeah. imagine if that you know that was built into the curriculum of all the you know, naturopathic schools or the <laughs> other places where people are struggling to, to learn about natural medicine. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine in Indy in Portland, his name's Glenn Nagel. He That's actually takes, he takes Indies out into nature. Great. Glenn's great. I met him. 
oh, good. He'll take them and, and have them camp and then have them jump in the cold creek in the morning. And these are all old naturopathic traditions, you know, and even, they're even hunter gatherer traditions, yeah. you know. Um, uh, uh, yeah. With that, that yeah. trust. So that's like the, uh, I, I talk about on learning herbs, uh, all the, the secret to learning about, you know, herbs is, uh, you know, simple. You just go have experiences. You just make one recipe at a time, you know, and uh-huh. that's, that's great in one sense of the thing. But as you start to get into it a bit, now you, what you're hearing you say to me is like really where I'm going with all, everything on Herb Mentor and really what it's about. It's that connection to nature. And that's really the secret right there. The yeah. And you have to do those. I mean, you have to uh, get the herb and taste it and feel what it's doing in your body and pay attention to that. And, uh, uh, I kind of like to say that, you know, for I'm kind of a four directions model for training herbalists in the, you know, the north would be um, studying the old books. Mm-hmm. You know, what do the books say about it? What does Maud Greaves say about it? You know, what does David Hoffman say about it? What do the, you know, the old eclectic herbalists say about that herb? And that's part of learning the herb. Opposite that is the south. This, the only way you can do that is you got to take some, mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know, for me, like, I mean, this is just uh, kind of my representation of it. But um, the um, in the you know the south is where you get direct experience, uh, uh, what the trackers call dirt time, and uh, there you are. You're taking the herbs, right? And uh, there there are things you can learn in the south that you can't learn in the north. Um, I'll give an example. My my students all take an herb of the week, and uh, this just happened yesterday. Uh, a woman was taking turmeric, right? Uh, one capsule, and she says by the third. She says by the third day, I didn't want to see turmeric again. It, you know, it was making me hot. Another woman was taking a different herb, and she says, "Wow, by the third day, I was really tired of that." Right? And a third woman, three in one day, you know, said, "Oh, I, I took. Um, I think she was taking uh, red clover or something." She said, "I really liked it, so I drank about three cups, and I drank a lot of it. And by the third day, I was really, really didn't want to see any more of that." How, where is it ever written in a book? How long before your patient's going to get tired of their herb? And how much dose you, you need to give to somebody? What would be the dose of turmeric to keep a person from getting overheated? Right. And so, see, this kind of training has to be done by trying it. And, of course, we're in a community, so we all get to learn from each other, right? So everybody learned about her experience with turmeric. And then that opened the door for me to talk about herbs you can combine to turmeric, which will negate some of its heating effects so you can take it longer. And uh, also, you know, it's my opinion, most people, if you want to take a tea, now I'm assuming you're making a strong tea, not just a little weak celestial seasonings tea bag type of tea, but, you, you know, you're making a strong tea, uh, you know, the medicinal dose is one or two shot glasses of that tea. You know, in most cases, that will do what you want that tea to do. If it's, a, say, an expectorant and you, know, you want to clear some mucus, uh, you can do a couple of ounces. If you think about it, if somebody took a whole ounce of tincture, you'd think that was a great big dose. But uh, then people take eight ounces of, of a strong tea, and people think that's just a normal dose. So uh, many times medicinally, especially a strong tea, the dose is a shot glass. Or, uh, two, or two ounces or four ounces, you know, not a whole cup. Mm-hmm. When people end up taking a whole cup, that's when they get to where, oh, boy, I just didn't want to see any more of that. That was like way too much. Yeah. 
you know, this can arise from the psychology of relying on the herb instead of relying on the vital force. People think, oh, I like, I, I need a strong tea for me. No, life is really strong. That power that brings, that brought the geese back and brought the forest back and made it more diverse, right? That power is there. That's the power that's going to do the healing. Uh, and you're, you may take the tea in order to support what that's trying to do. You know, the, the vital force is trying to clear the airway. You can take some tea that will help you clear the airway. You're going in the same direction as what the vital force is doing. But you don't have to take huge amounts of it to do that. You know, or you can take herbs that will keep the airway moist. You know. uh, so, and, and then the vital force will do, do the coughing for you. Right? You, don't, you don't need the herb to do the coughing for you. It's <laughs> amazing stuff, Mike. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> so that, that, the hands-on piece, that's how you learn things like how much, how long side effects uh, this is common. People will take lavender. You know, they lavender. They'll take a cup of lavender tea or half a cup, and they'll feel kind of blissful and say, "I'm, I'm going to take one of those every night for the rest of my life." Right? By the third or fourth day, you know, uh, lavender is warm and dry. Third or fourth day, they're getting cracked, dry mucous membranes and puckered lips, and uh, and they're feeling hot in the face. You know, so uh, a lot of that. See, the field for learning for that is dirt time. It's taking those herbs, right? and uh, so and then. Uh, Kind of what I see, that's the north-south axis, and I kind of the east, you know, traditionally the east is like sunrise, and that's where new, new things are coming in. And there's various new things coming into herbalism, but um, one of them is science, <laughs> you know, scientific experiments with herbs. Um, that's like, what, a century old out of, you know, probably several million years of primates taking herbs as medicines, you know. So, um uh, and then uh, that ha- that has its place. So we do some some scientific study. I can say at our school, we're more interested in nutritional science and the physiology and pathology, like how the body works, mm-hmm. and how the body works uh, how the body works when you give it proper nutrients. Right? We're more interested in that science than saying, well, this plant has this constituent, which acts like that drug, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Okay. Generally, um, I just did this class yesterday. I gave my students a list of all the all the plant constituents in yarrow and all their pharmacological actions. That's three columns, six-point type, four pages. Oh, my goodness. And then I gave them a list of the traditional actions of yarrow, which is like bitter tonic, astringent, hemostatic, um, you know, topical anti-inflammatory. You know, there's about seven of them. Easier to remember. No, and I see. Now, which, which one? I'll give 10 of you the plant constituents and their pharmacological action. And I'll give 10 of you the traditional action. Who's going to be able to develop a clinical practice? Right? You, you, you can't base a clinical practice on everything that is known about herbs from the scientific point of view. You will never be able to successfully develop a clinical practice. And, uh, whereas you could take all the traditional actions that have been known for years, and especially if you've grounded them by with your own experience and tasting, and those of your colleagues, you could build a whole clinical practice on that. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, science can add some information. You know, I can add a little bit of information. Um, what were we doing the other day? You, um, there's a very nice, cool way you can make uh, uh, an herbal preparation. You you powder the herbs. And then you heat honey almost up to boiling, mm-hmm. and then you stir the herb powder into the honey. This is a, a traditional uh, four humors uh, method of uh, of making herbs, and uh, 
at, and uh, that sort of then, even if you take it off the heat, that then sort of cooks those herbs a little bit. It decocts them, kind of like hot water will decoct a, a tea. Mm-hmm. And um, you do it's kind of like, so it's thick like bread. It makes a nice paste, right? And, uh, but at the end there, you uh, can add essential oils, right? Uh, the problem is the, the, um, the heat drives those essential oils off really, really fast, so just uh, where some knowledge of science can help. Well, the essential oils are fat-soluble, right? And resins in plants are fat-soluble. So uh, you could uh, make them as tinctures because the fat-soluble will go into alcohol, right? And you could add tinctures at the end instead of the essential oils because the tinctures are less likely to cook off, right? Or you understand that they're fat-soluble. You can uh, you can stir-fry those herbs in a just very, very low heat, short time, in some oil. They're fat-soluble. Like myrrh gum will go right out into an oil if you, if you lightly stir-fry it, right? Then you can add the oil to that thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, it's way less likely to cook off than... Then, if you just put the essential oil, which just goes, it almost vaporizes. Poof, you know, it goes off. And um, I mean, so I mean, that's an example of where you can use knowledge from science. You know, science of solubility, constituent solubility, right? And in order to uh, make a medicine, you know, or or a better medicine. So there's a place for you know for for science. The thing for me for herbalism, science, what's in the East, what's new, can bring new information. But it won't negate the old information. Mm-hmm. Right? It can add. And that's the beauty. Every sunrise adds something new to your life. But it doesn't negate your, your life before that time. Right, right. And the experience <laughs> you had before that time. So this is uh, that perspective. And I will say the, the problem in uh, our, modern, uh, you know, our modern society and our souls are being eaten up with a materialistic philosophy, which says that science is the center of the four directions. You know, and that the North is um, superstition, uh, the South is unreliable anecdote, and the West, when we get to intuition and instinct, mm-hmm. <laughs> is just some form of lunacy, right? And uh, what, what's part of the reason our society is uh, literally ripping apart at the seams is w- that's not the center of the four directions. <laughs> Science and all the scientific endeavor in the world is not, mm-hmm. Right. And the old traditions are not superstition, and your direct experience is not unreliable, right? It's very reliable, right? And uh, it doesn't mean each of those ways of knowing, right? Science, tradition, personal experience, or instinct. It doesn't mean that they don't have their own pitfalls or their own possible blind spots. Right? Uh, but um, they're, I think they're all equally valid ways of knowing, and that you have to be the synthesizer in the middle. And... Um, uh, sometimes any one of those four directions can answer your question and trump all the other ones. You, know, hmm. you, you can say, well, our ancestors drank milk for, ten, for, for the last 4,000 years, right? And science says not more than one-tenth of one percent of the population are allergic to milk, right? Well, if you eat milk and it gives you arthritis… Mm-hmm. The rest of that's all irrelevant. Right, right. <laughs> right the, South, the South just trumped the other ones. Right, right. right. And… Uh, I've had situations where my intuitive and instinctual insight was accurate when the other three were not. Mm. That uh, so, some of that for diagnostics, some of that perceiving when a, a student is is there's something more going on than what they thought. Um, 
I had a, a patient one time, and there was some clinical information, but she had a was diagnosed with a uterine fibroid, and uh, I uh, get, and had f- uh, severe fatigue, and uh, I just gave her some uh, you know some stuff, and a week later she came back, and she didn't respond the way you would have normally expected. And my instinct, I I don't have diagnostic skill for this. My instinct said to tell her to call her doctor. Go straight home. Do not pass go. Call your doctor. Tell your doctor you want to see your doctor in the morning. You don't want to wait three weeks for a diagnosis, uh, for an appointment. You have to see her in the morning and that, uh, and, and insist on that. And she did. And she had cancer. And she had a growing uh, uterine cancer that had spread to her colon. Wow. And uh, it was my instinct that said, there's something seriously wrong here. <laughs> Right. I don't. I don't have the medical training to have diagnosed what was going on there, but I detected, you know, there's a disturbance in the force. <laughs> <laughs> Something's not right here. I'm connected to the field of life. She's connected to the field of life, and that field told me there's something seriously wrong here. And uh, a couple of years ago, she and I celebrated her five-year survival. Wow. And uh, she had had to have all the conventional treatment for. She had metastasized cancer to her brain and her liver, right? Which is this is all totally, completely incurable, right? And uh, she uh, did some, you know, she. The best predictor for survival of cancer is that you become your own decider, right? And don't give yourself over to other people. And she uh, picked and chose her therapy. She did conventional therapy. She did supportive vitalist therapy and all that. And um, she's alive now, seven years later, and. Uh, uh, and I like to – I tell my students we have classes in referral skills. I said, you know, a timely referral could be the most important thing in your Materia Medica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, knowing your limits, right, and knowing when somebody really, really needs to see a doctor, you know, could be could be uh, critically, you know, uh, important. And I, I tell them that case. Yeah, I've done you that know. too. It's a take a blood pressure on the first treatment or something, and I've been like, I'll do acupuncture on you after you go see your doctor. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and that's important. <laughs> yeah. So um yeah. The um I think that I think that's about it for me today. <laughs> well, Paul, and, um, um I just want to um you know, this this is perfect because I I I really after hanging out with you and getting a sense where you're coming from and and your background and and your way of going about teaching as well as working with your clients what you shared today was really uh, in our first in your first interactions with your mentor community because i hope you'll be back (laughs) Um, Uh um, i wanted to kind of people to kind of get a sense of where you were coming from and how important um like that really touched me when you were talking last week about some of the stories that you shared and you know the core of the vitalist tradition and the different traditions and and all and and, um and i it's just um you know, this is just amazing, uh, and I know that this uh, a talk like this that we just had can really shift a person's perspective and also help guide someone new who's coming into the perhaps the kind of uh, herbal study and the kind of approach that they want to take. Um, so, what I want to do now to just finish up is just um, speaking of referrals. Um, I know that um, you know places online. Where people can find your work, and um, 
So the medical journals, the website for that, for folks, is what? It's medherb.com. M as in Michael, E, D as in dog, H, E, R, B as in boy, dot com. And that's uh, many back issues of the journal? Back issues of the journal. There's a whole lot of resources and links there. And you can subscribe to it, too, there? No, nah, it's all free. Oh, it's all free. Great. And um, what I did, I, that I put that together as, uh, you know, the internet was kind of new back in the nineties. And in in nineteen ninety eight, I took a, I turned fifty, and I I did a sabbatical, a three month <laughs> sabbatical. Herbalists get three month sabbaticals right, <laughs> if they're lucky. And um, uh, but I was uh, cruising the internet. The internet was all pretty new, and um, I just made a bunch of links and annotated them for my students, and posted a website for my students. And so there's a lot of you can find information about botany or physiology or just all the kind of things a person would have in an herbal curriculum uh, is is on there, and um, including um, like almost 20 years of back issues of of my medical herbalism journal is there also. Um, very funny story because a couple of weeks later I got a um, an email and it was from Encyclopedia Britannica and they wanted to give me a best of the web tag. Nice. For <laughs> and then a couple of weeks later the National Cancer Institute linked to it mm, nice. <laughs> as an authoritative site. Nice. So uh, Good it's work. kind of a mixture. I kind of uh, I kind of uh, my position is any information from traditional herbalism. <laughs> that's great. Mm-hmm. Any information from scientific herbalism, that's great. You know, just uh, herbalists, we want to get all the information we can because whoever has the most accurate facts in the end wins. So mm-hmm. that's what that, that site is. And um, and I'll put that link right on the page where this uh, audio is hosted on herbmentor.com. And also, uh, we, we, shot, uh, we, we shot a little bit of video, which I'll get up on our mentor uh, soon, I hope. Uh, get some uh-huh. time to edit that together, some nice stuff. There's also um, videos, new videos. Are they released yet on herbtvonline.com? Or did, did Dave release those as DVDs yet you can buy the videos he did with you? Uh, Herb TV? I, 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 I didn't look. I th- I don't know. I think so. Well, there's on our, on the Herb TV section on Herb Mentor. There, uh, I have uh, Paul talking about H1N1. You can go look at that, and there's a link over to Herb TV from there, and you can see because uh, Dave from Herb TV went and, and hung out with with Paul and did some great yeah. stuff. Um, your books, you can find. Where do you recommend people try to find your books these days? Well, <laughs> most of my books you can get for like about a dollar on the used book market. On okay. The so just and, put your uh, name in a search engine and off you go. They're, they're all just as good as the $20 books that were out last year, last decade, except they're the same books actually, but <laughs> you can get them for about a dollar. The exception is a nutrition book I, I wrote, and that one sells for like about 100 bucks because it's in, in kind of high demand. I love your book on the on garlic, healing power of garlic, and so that's one of those buck books you can probably get. <laughs> um, yeah. And let's see. And uh, finally, um, to find out about uh, your long term, um, cert- your what do you call it a certification or a degree program or or or. How do you well, our, our school is. Um, uh, regulated by the Colorado Department of Higher Education. We're uh, regulated as an occupational school. Mm-hmm. And the um, so as such, we're not academically accredited, but we are regulated. And you get a certificate, and the certificate says Colorado Department of Higher Education on it. And um, the 
uh, it's a two-year program. Uh, you spend uh, the first year in the field and, and in the classroom, and then the last uh, uh, nine months you spend actually working in our public clinic um, uh, with a mentoring and supervision in a cl- clinical setting. And, uh, and you can go through it and you can get uh, completely certified as a clinical herbalist, and you can take a little extra classes and be also be certified as a clinical nutritionist. Wow. And then you can do a few more extra classes, and you can be certified as a flower essence practitioner. Wow! <laughs> so I, all, all in all, in the same twenty months. And then so. people can start out learning from you by uh, on your site by uh, with CD sets you put together, right? Well, I yeah, I have audio courses, audio. Uh, there are segments. They're actually recordings of our program here in Boulder, but they're broken into little segments, the uh, seminars. So like, there's one on formulation, you know, and there'll be one on insulin resistance, there'll be one on detoxification, things like that. And they're, they're actually recordings from our advanced program here. So if people want a little more advanced training than, than basic, these can take a person who already knows a little bit about herbs and take them farther into a particular field. Okay, and yeah. uh, you can uh, find out about that once again on N A. I-M-H, that's North American Institute of Medical Herbalism, dot com. That's it. Paul Bird, I did, go ahead. I did just look on, um, I did just look on Herb TV and the, he has my influenza set up there. Oh, okay, great. That's a, a two DVD set on, on, um, uh, influenza, pathophysiology and natural therapeutics, kind of a timely topic. And very timely topic. Yeah. Well, Paul Bergner, it's been a... Total honor, total pleasure. It's been great. I appreciate you taking your time to chat with us today. It's awesome. I had a really good time and learned a lot. Well, thanks so much, John. All right. Well, we hope to have you back here. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Paul. Have a good day. Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including Herb Mentor News, Home Remedy Secrets, and Supermarket Herbalism. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio. Copyright LearningHerbs.com. All rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.